A man without ethics is a wild beast loosed upon this world. Welcome to Wild Beasts, a podcast about ethics. What is a metaverse? And who should have control over our bodies in virtual spaces? Today's episode features a conversation with Eric Ramirez, a professor of philosophy and an expert in virtual reality technologies. I'm Courtney Davis, and thanks for tuning in. So there's a difference between virtual reality, augmented reality, and extended reality, correct? Can you walk me through how those three come apart? You know, uh, I think the giant category is extended reality. And what all forms of extended reality have in common is that they add simulated content, right? Content that has been created by someone else into our experience somehow. And, and then when we talk about virtual and augmented reality, it's a way of really talking about how much of our experience is being replaced by simulated content. If you think about the way we traditionally use virtual reality language today, we're, we're usually talking about the kinds of things you need to put on a headset on, right? And the headset with, mic- with a headphones on is built to completely replace your experience with this simulated content, visual and, and auditory anyway, right? Um, a little bit with haptics too, which is replacing some of your tactile experience with simulated content. So virtual reality, you can sort of think of as one of the extreme ends of the extended reality spectrum where as much of your experience as we have the technology to replace with simulated content is being replaced. And then augmented reality, I think there's a, just a bigger range of what we think of as augmented reality in the sense that only some of your experience is being replaced, right? And, th- and that could be really, really minimal. It, it could just be like a filter that you apply to a picture, right? Is is a form of augmented reality. It's it's slightly changing the depiction of reality in whatever way you desire, right? If it's just making the color more saturated or if it's like a body sculpting kind of filter and so on. All of those things are um, forms of augmented reality. So what I'm hearing from you is that extended reality would be the larger category inside of which augmented reality and virtual reality live. Right. And it's just a, it's a big spectrum, right? The extended reality spectrum will have virtual reality on one end and then maybe a, a big smear of augmented reality, you know, going from minimal to, to pretty intense, right? If you're wearing like a Microsoft HoloLens, which is something else you wear, or a Google Glass before it, you know, went defunct. You could actually replace a lot of your experience with simulated overlays, but that's, you know, still a form of augmented reality because you're still managing and maneuvering in the real physical world. It's just that aspects of that world look different as a result of the overlays. Right. And so because it's this spectrum that reflects different extremes and we'll get into this as the conversation continues, I'm sure, but I imagine that the ethical stakes are different on different ends of this spectrum. Can you talk about how that might vary across the spectrum that you're describing? Yeah. In some ways, the concerns are going to be the same, meaning some terms we haven't yet defined, right? But like there are definitely ways in which augmented reality can have the same kinds of like virtually real experiences that virtual reality has. In fact, in some ways, it's easier with augmented reality. And so like ethical issues surrounding those are going to be the same. In the most obvious way, one problem with virtual reality, we just defined it, right? We said like a virtual reality 
is when as much of your sensory modalities as possible that we have the technology to replace are being replaced. Um, this means people get hurt all the time in the physical world because they are feeling so present or immersed in the virtual world. So there's there's that element, right, where you really got to clear your space and be careful because there are those kinds of ethical issues with virtual reality. But I, I think, you know, in terms of certain kinds of psychological risk and psychological harm, I think it's less about whether the whether we're dealing with a fully replaced simulation or only a partially replaced reality than how those simulations are designed and what they might be doing to us. So so there I want to say that the issues are are strongly overlapping. Like you said, it kind of depends on the space that's being created or the extent to which your your senses are taken over, so to speak. I don't know if that's a correct way of putting it. I do want to talk about some of those things. You mentioned the term virtually real experiences. This is something that you bring up pretty regularly. Can you define that a little more succinctly, what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I talk about virtually real experiences, I'm talking about experiences that somebody has in extended reality. And, and I think some things can make those more or less likely. We can talk about that. But an experience that somebody is having in some form of extended reality that in the moment when they're having the experience, they're treating it as if it were real. And what do I mean by as if it were real? I actually think that can mean a couple of different things, right? So I, I mean things like behaviorally, they're acting as if this thing is really happening to them or psychologically, right? They're, they're, they're processing this information as if it were really happening. Neurologically, physiologically, Right, the same kinds of neurological or physical physiological changes we would expect to see in a body if this was really happening or actually happening in the body, also under this sort of simulated experience. Um, so I would count all of those as like forms of virtually real experience. Okay, so that makes sense. I think a lot of people, when they think about extended reality or virtual reality, when they're thinking about experiences that they have with these technologies, they tend to exclude the physical component. Right, they think it's all in their mind. But you would also say that these technologies create physical experiences just like you would in our real reality, correct? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, that there's been a, at this point, a multi-decade long movement in cognitive science, cognitive psychology, philosophy of mind, of thinking of our cognition as embodied. Right, it is not just abstract symbol manipulation. Uh, it's it it happens in a body, and in fact, bodies can impact how we process information. In fact, they might be necessary in order to see the world the way we see it. We need to take into account how our perceptual, literal, biological mechanisms work, and and some of that I think is important to remember when we are having these experiences. I think for me, the most powerful example at least in the moment, about virtually real experience, but also this, this, this embodied element of cognition, perception, and so on, is the success that other people have had with virtual reality exposure therapies, right? So um, exposure therapies are a particular kind of therapy that usually gets used for people with like specific phobias or post-traumatic stress kinds of disorders. And, and it's about, right, teaching people cognitive behavioral techniques to better understand themselves, the situations in which things might trigger their particular phobia or, or post-traumatic stress. And 
gain a kind of control over those responses. And you do this in real life. And over time, for a lot of people, that can be really powerful. It can have a really powerful effect on diminishing those harmful, you know, feelings of of stress, anxiety, panic, and so on. And before virtual reality, you know, there was a there was another form of exposure therapy that was called imaginative exposure therapy, right? And it was very similar, except instead of really exposing someone, if I'm afraid of spiders, right? Like from a first like showing me a cartoon spider and having me kind of process and deal with my own bodily reactions, what's going on in my body as I see the cartoon spider. You just imagine you ask subjects to imagine these things and you you imaginatively get them to do this. And um, once virtual reality technology really began to mature, one of the first, um, I think, really interesting uses of it was for virtual reality versions of exposure therapy. And those really mimic the exposure therapy format just in a virtual space. So this is very fascinating. I mean, my so this is a different kind of use for virtual reality or extended reality that I'm used to thinking about, because when I'm thinking about these technologies, I'm thinking a lot about video games, or I'm thinking about different forms of social media, things that might not look as good as some of these therapeutic applications, right? And even without taking it as far, the technology as far as you sort of mentioned, we've been dealing with augmented forms of augmented reality for a while. But these things can be taken a little bit too far. We care about our virtual bodies. And this is why when we use social media, we use something like Snapchat, we might apply a filter to our selfies before we post them online, right? We care about the way that we are embodied online or in virtual spaces. And so I do want to just take a step back to think about some of those negative uses of extended reality, things that might not be designed with the good as a goal? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, in part, my sort of reason for going through virtual reality exposure therapy was just to show that when you do that kind of simulation, you actually get results that look a lot more like traditional exposure therapy than you do with imaginative exposure therapy, which is generally less successful. And so the the simulated space is producing therapeutic results that look basically like real results. And so to me, that's always been a good source of evidence for virtually real experiences happening there, right? If you build the environment in a certain way, you can get people to treat their experiences as if they were real. And, you know, one of those kinds of experiences is exactly the one that you're talking about here, which is experiences connected to um, identity and embodiment. And so... um, Snapchat dysphoria, you know, there are a lot of things that um, are mental health terms that are not technically speaking in the DSM, right? Um, And, you know, somebody that experienced Snapchat dysphoria would probably get diagnosed with something like body dysmorphic disorder of some kind um, or something in that neighborhood because of how the specifics work. But Snapchat dysphoria is a kind of colloquial term that some psychologists have been using to describe a a kind of unhappiness or pain that's caused by a mismatch between the way a person sees themselves as filtered through some kind of augmented reality overlay and how they see themselves through, like just in a mirror, for example, right? And identifying more strongly with the the filtered augmented reality version of their themselves than with the physical self. And so you get a conflict between the physical version, the physical embodiment, and the augmented reality embodiment that causes distress, right, or suffering. 
there are a lot of interesting questions and issues that, that branch out from what I think is the very real phenomenon that, that we're seeing there. Right. And so we're seeing the ways in which this technology can be used as a way to explore our identities, correct? I could be using Snapchat, Snapchat filters to kind of discover who I'd want to be or what I'd want to look like. And maybe these apps are manipulating us in a certain way or encouraging us to see ourselves in one uniform beauty standard-esque way, but still the technology becomes this tool for exploring our identities and it doesn't always have to be negative. I've heard you talk a little bit about people who've had experiences in extended reality where they were embodied as a different gender and then as a result of that experience decided to go through gender confirmation surgery, which can be a very positive life affirming experience for someone. So can you talk a little bit about that case or, or what that looked like? Yeah, good. You're referring specifically to some studies by uh, a researcher named Google Freeman, who does a lot of really interesting research about social extended reality, about embodiment and extended reality and so on. Um, at Clemson University. One important difference between the work that she's doing and the Snapchat idea, you're, something that's similar, right, is you're getting a conflict between a person's decision about what form of embodiment better represents their true self, let's call it, though that's a philosophically loaded term, and, and their physical self. So you're getting a conflict like that in both cases. In the Snapchat case, there's an additional layer of concern because of limitations, right? Users don't create the filters. The, the filters are created by other people. And so the options for creating a body are always going to be limited by the by the intentions of other people. And, and so in that sense, yes, we can definitely be coerced or nudged into conforming to certain kinds of ideas about how we should filter ourselves in that way, right? And And that could be, like I said, coercive. It could be harmful in those ways because our options are limited. What's really interesting about the studies that Freeman did about avatar creation and embodiment is that people were basically free to create bodies of any kind in any way that they chose, right? So they had a, as much freedom as the technology allows to create avatars for themselves and to embody them in virtual reality. So there, that's, I think, a real important difference. And I think it's partially why people identified so strongly with these um, created avatars in her studies. I mean, other factors are just technical. There's like full body motion tracking, right? So if you've ever used a VR system today, usually we just have hand tracking uh, either by handsets or something like that. But this is a full body tracking. If I lift my leg, I would see my leg lift up in virtual reality, right? So there's more of what I would call um, perspectival fidelity and context realism in that form of embodiment. But yes, people definitely used that opportunity to explore their own sense of embodiment. And in some cases, like the one you mentioned, people made, you know, people had this experience of a conflict. My body, when I'm embodied in this kind of body, feels more real and authentic to me than when I take the headset off and, I, and I'm physically embodied differently. And, it, and in those cases, people, you know, sought to change the physical body to bring it in line with the virtual body. That's similar evidence of, this as yet underexplored question about how important embodiment is to us, virtual or physical, and how to reconcile right these conflicts between virtual and physical embodiment, 
how to think about regulation of virtual embodiment, right? Um, because as I said with the Snapchat example, if somebody else is owning or designing these things that are deeply meaningful and important, not in the like way that some virtual item I buy could also be deeply meaningful and important, but like literally tied to my sense of self, then that I think becomes this, an area of, of tremendous moral political concern as well. Like how do we think about regulation in those contexts? I completely agree. And the distinction is important. I mean, the Snapchat example is very different from the example that was described in this study, because in the study, the participants had free range to design their own avatars. They could create their own personalities, create their own bodies. And then using the technology, we're able to step into these very realistic virtual worlds where they had, as you described earlier, these virtually real experiences. They're psychologically, neurologically, and oftentimes physically the same as they would be otherwise. And so you're having different thoughts and experiences than you would be when you're just taking selfies like on Snapchat. But when I think about ever using technologies like this, I'm thinking about, oh, the metaverse, we're all going to be living in the metaverse soon. This is a term that you use a lot. It's a loaded term socially because of the way that it's been used by certain companies. But I just want to know what the current state of the metaverse is. It's this kind of convoluted term. Is it this product that Mark Zuckerberg has designed that <laughs> I'm going to necessarily have to join as a social pressure like 10 years from now? Or, or what is it? Or how do you talk about it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, and metaverse really is, you know, it's, it's a term that has maybe too strongly come to be associated with the company meta and its extended reality horizon worlds that it's been building for quite some time. If I'm going to use that term, though, I, I'd, I'd want it to have a broader meaning to, to refer to any extended reality space that has some kind of social element to it, right? So um, if I'm just playing a game in VR by myself, it's just a first it's one single player experience that I, I, I'm happy to call that an extended reality simulation. It certainly is that. But I wouldn't see that as a metaverse in the sense that I think metaverses are social spaces. So Horizon World certainly would count, right, as a, as a metaverse. Um, but so would VRChat, right, which is another competing app. And so all of these kinds of situations, I think, would count as, as metaverses so long as they are making use of extended reality technologies specifically. Otherwise, any... Any online social experience is a metaverse, and 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 maybe there are uses where that makes sense too, but but I think the problems that happen, you know, when I'm in a Zoom video conference with ten people, are just different than the kinds of issues that would occur meeting those same ten people in an extended reality space. Right, and maybe you can talk a little bit about why that's the case. I mean, we think about social media and Snapchat as, you know, being social technologies, but these are social in a different way. And a lot of that has to do with embodiment, right? Right. So my, 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 my way of thinking about this anyway is because extended reality is recruiting the same kinds of perceptual, cognitive, predictive mechanisms that we use in physical space to maneuver, right, socially, but also literally, then the things that happen there can raise a lot of, so on the one hand, they can raise a lot of the same kinds of concerns 
that physical spaces can can raise. And I think that is an, an underappreciated point at this period in the history of this technology, right? That like that you really can physically harass somebody in a social extended reality space. I think we have good evidence that you literally can physically harass them, even though obviously if you're not in the same physical space, you can't touch them. Um, but from a virtually real experience point, you can induce the same kinds of psychological consequences of physical harassment, even the feeling of touch, um, even the feeling of touch without haptics. There's there's this phenomenon that's referred to as phantom touch, right? That comes from having the sense of being touched because you expected to be touched, um, even though without haptics, nothing is actually even touching you, right? And so you can create a lot of the same psychological consequences on people in social extended reality spaces if they're constructed in a certain way than you can in the real world. So there's there's that, right? There's the fact that some of the problems that exist in physical spaces that don't exist in purely screen-based, you know, computer screen-based social online spaces, embodiment changes things in other ways that make those spaces raise their own problems or not problems issues right unresolved questions um some of them moral some of them political some of them legal that we would do better to pay more attention to before we're all stepping in these spaces than than after right and before we move on from this harassment point you just mentioned how in these spaces you can have real experiences of physical harassment as you would in the real world. But these technologies are also unique. They're unique spaces. And so they can create probably unique forms of harassment in a metaverse like extended reality. Are there unique forms of harassment that users ought to be looking out for? Yeah. And for for us, so this is connected to this paper that we published, XR Embodiment and the Changing Nature of Sexual Harassment. When we thought about this topic, right, we were sort of trying to break it into different aspects. So one of those aspects is just some forms of harassment totally unchanged. It's, it's kind of ironic that we're having this conversation, you know, mediated through streaming video online internet technology because we're also having a conversation, right? even though you are not hearing my words as produced by my vibrating vocal cords moving pressure waves in the air, which somebody in my room here in my office would hear, right? You're hearing something else coming out of speakers on your end. That technological mediation is irrelevant to the fact that we're having a verbal conversation. And so some things like verbal harassment, that's just going to be the same. It's going to be the same in a physical space as it is in a virtual space, as it is in an online space, so long as we can communicate this way. So there, the technology doesn't change the harassment at all. There are going to be these sort of mixed forms of harassment that I just described one form to you, right? So um, when we think about physical harassment, or when we think about the difference between physical stalking and cyber stalking, and something we called avatar chasing, which is like the, the XR equivalent, right? They all have something in common, which is a form of obtrusive and harmful monitoring of somebody's behavior and activity. But in one case, right, you're physically moving around the world, the physical world. In another case, you're intrusively monitoring someone's patterns of social online activity. And then in a virtual space, in an in extended reality space, you may actually be doing something that looks a little bit like physical harassment in the sense that you will be moving in a real space to track somebody. It's just that it's a real virtual space, right? And so it has some elements of physical stalking, some elements of, of other forms. So we call it a mixed variance form of harassment. But you know, your your question was about 
unique forms of harassment that might arise in that context. And, and there, I, I think, you know, there, there really are. And it's about what the technology allows us to do that we can't currently do with online behavior and that we can't currently do in physical spaces. Just to give you an example, like one kind of harassment that we thought about was about taking control of somebody else's embodiment, right? Like, I can't do that in a physical space, literally impossible. And you can't be embodied in the in the relevant way online. You can certainly have like an online identity that somebody could steal. But that's not being embodied in the way you're embodied in an extended reality world. So this form of harassment would be to have somebody literally take control over the parameters of your embodiment for the specific purpose of harassing you, right? And and as, as we said earlier in our conversation, because under the right circumstances, people can actually form a real deep sense of sharing or incorporating their, their virtual embodiment into their sense of who they are, there's a damage there, there's a harm that can be caused that we it's hard to explain in terms that are, you know, we created to make sense of physical physical harassment space. Um, so, you know, we call that embodiment harassment, but uh, it, you know, it seems like a kind of harassment that's unique to this space. Right. There isn't a real analog, but you would imagine that it would be acutely invasive because that's the point of this research or, or what you're talking about is that we take our, our virtual bodies at least as seriously as our physical bodies. And so if there are new ways that our body is taken advantage of, I don't know, it's just interesting to think about at least how we'd experience that or what kind of harm that would do to a person. Right. I mean, the, the the closest equivalent I can imagine, though, this this also wouldn't be equivalent. I think the harms wouldn't be identical, right, would be to, to wake up to realize somebody's performed cosmetic surgery on you. And that would be a real intrusion into your bodily integrity and autonomy, into certain kinds of rights you have. And at the moment, anyway, we have no framework for extending those rights to virtual embodiment, right? Those, those are rights that exist to protect physical bodies. Right. And I'm wondering, I mean, just to kind of go back to your point about we need to be thinking about some of the moral, social, political implications of these technologies before we encourage people to hop online or join the metaverse or whatever you, you might say. Are these companies designing these spaces with ethics in mind? Are they doing anything to prevent these harms? Is there any evidence that they're doing that or not? Um, I think that there's evidence that there are people who really care about harm prevention involved in developing these projects. But like any kind of project, you know, there are there are things that pull in different directions. And it may turn out, you know, that some of the things that look like they might solve a problem of harm in one arena could create a problem in a different arena, right? And just to give you a specific example, one of the very first things that happened infamously so, right, um, in in social extended reality spaces was that people got sexually harassed in them, right? And so one of the kinds of tools that has been used to try to mitigate that problem has been to give users certain kinds of control. Um, so on the one hand, you can get control over an amount of virtual space so that people can't come into that space without your permission. Right. So like you have a little privacy bubble that blocks other people from coming in. Um, another kind of control that people can give that are, are given to, to mitigate those problems is 
being able to block and mute strangers. And those, you know, I think there's a very clear sense in which that makes sense. That will solve a very specific form of harassment problem. But it also creates some issues that we need to at least understand and, and realize we're creating if we're going to go that route towards mitigating these problems. Because what it what you're also doing when you do that is you're giving other people control over your body, right? This is not something that we can do in physical spaces. If you're at a park and I'm at a park and you find, let's make it not about us. If two people are at a park uh, <laughs> and one of them finds the other physically repulsive, you can't just erase somebody in a physical space because you don't like them or because you find them obnoxious or obtrusive, right? There's there's a sense in which being in a shared communal space requires us to develop a certain sense of tolerance for one another in order to mutually coexist. If we're going to empower people to, to have control over the existence of others in a, an extended reality space, then we're changing that dynamic, right? There's no need to have to dialogue or deal with other people if I can erase them or mute them or block them. So they're not part of my lived experience. Um, and I think there are consequences to going that route with how we solve, right? Notice it's, it's, it's taking a stance on who gets to control over embodiment. You get to control other people's embodiments. In the real world, that would have, in the physical world, sorry, I think virtual worlds are real. In the physical world, that would be immediately problematic, right? You can imagine that if somebody, for example, is offended by interracial relationships, if they're offended by gender nonconforming people, if they're offended by all sorts of other people, and now can just erase them from their lived experience, you would see an immediate harm, right? We don't really think of erasure in this way as a real harm that we can do to each other. And this is, to me, a, a step of baking this into the structure of a virtual world. It may ultimately be the solution we have to do because people are so awful online. But if we do that, we have to accept that that's what we're doing, right? We're giving people control over embodiment in this way. And, and if there are other ways of solving this problem, that might be a better route. Yeah, especially as these technologies become more ubiquitous, it seems like it would encourage people to see people as less than human, right? If they have control over them, could erase them, it reduces their agency and dignity. We're no longer treating people with that basic level of dignity and respect, which seems pretty fundamental to the fabric of a well-functioning society. So that is a little scary. I think that control question is really complicated, even as you're talking about that system that you just described where I can control your embodiment in a social extended reality by erasing you if I find you repulsive. It still seems as though the company in some way controlled that system by, by enabling that tool to exist for me. And so I don't even know if in that case, I'm the one who has control over your body or if it's the company or the designer of that space who has ultimate control. What are your thoughts on that? Or maybe just more simply, who, who ought to control these spaces? Yeah, that's not an easy answer, but it's a good question. And the, the question about ownership is, is really hard, right? Because at the moment, anyway, metaverse spaces are all either function specific. So like it's a game space, you come here to play this particular game, or they're the virtual equivalent of like a corporate park, 
right? They're a privately owned space, but it's functioning as a as a public space. So everybody's invited to come here, but it's a corporation that owns the space. And so part of the concern there is that if all of this evidence that suggests that we can fundamentally identify with both physical and augmented reality embodiment as a, as a real essence of who we are, then we're going to want to take our bodies from one metaverse space to another, which means we're going to need to own them somehow. That question is really complicated. It's not clear that we have a framework for determining how that works. Right now, embodiment is not owned in this way. Anything you do on Horizon Worlds with an avatar is because they decided these are the generation limits on what avatars can look like in this space. And if we want to take away the rights to those spaces, um, or if we want to change the body options, you just have to roll with it. And so ownership right now works a certain way. Ownership might need to work a different way, um, though, though it's complicated, right? Because if I own my body in this way, then that might impact how we talk about the regulatory structure that we were just talking about. If 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 I own my my augmented reality or or extended reality body in the same way I own my physical body, then you can't turn that off, right? You can look away, you can like go to a different spot if you don't like me, but you can't erase me. Um, and it's because of my relationship to my body. And so I think all of these interesting questions are related and in related and complicated ways that are made even more complicated by the fact that these spaces are international spaces. So a regulatory framework can't just come from an individual state or an individual nation because the rules won't be the same everywhere in that context, right? And so figuring out how these spaces work and how they're regulated is the, the hard question, especially given the importance that they seem like they're going to have in you know, 10, 15, 20 years, right? Um, I want to push back or at least clarify something about the ownership point that you made, making claims about the way ownership works in virtual spaces. We, we want it to sort of emulate how we own our body in physical spaces. But it also seems like there are a lot of social issues going on in the world right now that have to do with embodiment, right? Like legislation being passed that imposes restrictions on women's bodies to, to get abortions or trans bodies, all of anti-trans legislation that's been passed recently. If we can't get this control right in the physical world, how are we going to get it right in virtual worlds? And also, it seems like there's something going wrong with this. We own our bodies in the physical world, so we ought to own them in virtual worlds because it's <laughs> there's a disconnect there. Those things shouldn't be happening, yet they are. Yeah, it, and you're right. It's absolutely complicated. Even if you didn't have those issues, uh, which I think stem from I don't know. In, in some cases, they stem from, I think, longstanding philosophical disagreements, let's say, about the moral status of a fetus. Right. And so if you really think that it's literal murder to have an abortion at six weeks or something, then you're going to come up with certain kinds of legislation. But even if you agree on things like who moral persons are, as a matter of real fact, uh, you're going to have you know, bias and imperfection, I don't know, in some cases, human awfulness, right? Um, the Markala Center has that ethics toolkit that um, I find really useful. And they always warn us to think of the terrible people, right? How will the terrible people use this this device or technology or service? And, you know, the, the terrible people make it the case, right? That like black bodies in real spaces are treated very differently 
than other bodies. And that's also a fact of embodiment, right? And in in virtual spaces, I think you you have in some ways, right, certain kinds of freedoms to restructure and reform bodies, but if they're going to be owned by corporations, that should be scary to us. Like that to me, that should be an option of last resort. Though thinking of states owning bodies is is equally hard to figure out, right? Thinking about what it would mean to have individuals own some extended reality element uh, that they can take with them from Horizon Worlds to VR Chat to some other space requires a new framework. I think I sent you this paper, but in 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 one of our papers, we try to explore how that even might be possible, right? Can you use like an NFT to take identity from one spot to another? Can you track identity in some other like some other ways that are might be more stable or sticky or something? And it's hard. Um, it's not clear that we even have the right tools right now to solve that problem. Right. But if we were to get this framework, right, that enabled us to have ownership over our virtual bodies in this way, then those social extended reality spaces do start to look like versions of or they could look like versions of an ideal society, right, where we have certain rights. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, that would be one part of it, right? The, the international nature of these spaces makes it the additional challenge. So if I identify as, you know, as a gay man, and I'm in a, in a part of the metaverse that's widely inhabited by people in a country where it's illegal to be that way, right? How is that space going to be regulated? Um, where it will individual nations be able to just create like, is there just going to be a series of metaverses that are just these, you know, really interesting kind of digital ghost worlds that are inhabited by, you know, is there like a digital West, a digital, so on uh, a metaverse that's for Westerners, a metaverse that's for other people, like, or is there a shared space that we, that we have, right? That, you know, in a way that stuff is, has been hard in terms of just literally internet regulation of content and and, and rights and protections and so on. Um, and, and I see that problem as, as at least as difficult for metaverse spaces, but I think probably more difficult. It's a, it's a challenge that I hope people smarter than me can, can make progress on. I mean, you're basically trying to design a utopia, right? Which is what philosophers have been trying to do forever. So it's, it's like if we can't get this this question right, or if we haven't gotten this question completely right in the physical world, it's it seems like a stretch to think about it, at least in these new virtual spaces. I'm wondering, what's the status of this control question right now? As it stands, it's mostly companies who have this control, correct? Has that changed over the past couple of years? Do you see it changing anytime soon? Are, are these conversations picking up in frequency or attracting more attention than they once did? Um, about the metaverse specifically and about embodiment, not yet. Uh, where you start to see these kinds of questions right now are in investment spaces and in like gaming spaces, actually, right? So, um, for example, right, like NFT art, an NFT, like collectible NFT material has created a really interesting series of questions, right, about property, about value in different ways. But that seems a, a, a different question than about identity. You know, there are gamers who want to take the skins that they buy right to 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 play in one game and just import them to other games that are made by other companies and so you don't have that crosstalk but you start to you're starting to see a desire in that way right to kind of have 
a more consistent experience across platforms. And so that aspect of the technological conversation, I think, is the beginning of this conversation that you're pointing to, right? Is in, in other words, I think a, a different way to think about it is even when your identity isn't actually on the line in this way, people are starting to want to be able to take digital possessions that are that were maybe created in a certain context and take them to other contexts. And um, what more important thing do you own in so far as a, a, a theory of property is the right theory to apply to your body? In like, what thing do you own that's more precious to you than your embodiment, right? And so I, I can imagine that playing a role, but it's it's not a, a conversation that's really happening right now. Right. So it's sort of this, the same old story. It's not ethics that's motivating the progress of the conversation. It's property. It's economic considerations and all of those things. So maybe hopefully we, we can steer that at some point. The control question is a little bit, I don't want to say out of our hands, but it's complicated. We can start to wrestle with it. But when I confront complicated questions like this that I can't immediately resolve, I return myself as an individual and try and think about what I can do to contribute to a better environment or better virtual spaces that I might belong to. So I'm wondering, maybe as a final question, what ethical principles can you encourage individual users to think about how to treat others, how to think about themselves? Yeah, uh, I, I have thoughts. I hope they're helpful. One thing that I think has been interesting and emergent from research on social extended reality is, you know, it, it's when, when we were talking, this is about the negative side, right? When we were talking about harassment, and I explain this kind of mixed variance form of harassment, right? Forms of harassment that look a bit like, like share a lot of features with physical harassment style, but are modified by the technology in some way. I think you're what you're seeing is like a kind of mixed variance ethics going on in these spaces. What do I mean by that? I mean that users in these spaces want to import the ethical norms and standards of physical spaces into this space and are struggling right now with how to adjust or modify those norms so that they work given the quirks and unique features of those spaces, right? So a, a quick example, um, this is from a different study, also by Google Freeman, actually. And, you know, there, it, it seemed pretty clear that users did want to keep some aspect of, um, like, personal space, even between purely, right, these are digital avatars, these are forms of extended reality embodiment. But again, they wanted to maintain a kind of personal distance. And so there was, there was a kind of, you know, series of gestures and so on that were developed to indicate to other people when appropriate distances had been reached, right? Um, which you don't really have to do in physical spaces, because we have a lot more expressive options, right? You can look at my face, you can kind of see what I'm doing with my body to like gauge that. And so other other forms of like norms that have to develop, right? Like in, in really social spaces, it, it can be hard because unlike physical spaces where I think we've got this like, um, again, we can recruit more of our perceptual mechanisms to make sense of a situation. In an extended reality space, like everybody could be trying to talk all at once. And so we, there are ways in which people like will develop a certain kind of system or sign to indicate how like norms will develop there, but it's it's trying to translate the same norms. It's just using the current way that these technologies allow us to talk to each other in order to, to, to make that translation. So that was a very long-winded way of saying that ultimately the way that 
we can non-consensually harm each other in those spaces is going to rest on moral judgment mechanisms that I think work just fine in that space, actually. The ones that we're importing into those spaces work okay. What we need to do is to think of the terrible people. And what I, what I mean by that is the designers have a responsibility to try and keep people from being able to use features of these systems to harm others in ways that our natural moral mechanisms that evolved in a physical space can't can't handle very well. So like um, deep fake harassment, right? Like, you know, it's me if you see me in a physical space, even if I, you know, maybe I can fool you if I'm wearing a like a fake theater beard or something, right? I can fool you for a little while. But because my body can only be modified so much, it's going to be really hard for me to pretend to be a totally different person, gain your confidence and then harm you. Because embodiment in a metaverse space, because XR embodiment doesn't have any limits, I can look completely differently from instance to instance. And so it's just easier for me to take advantage of you in that sense. And it's a responsibility of the designer there, I think. A virtuous UX designer would be a, would try to minimize the possibility of that kind of abuse. And then you can just take your moral judgment mechanisms from that room you're in right now and bring them into physical spaces. Our morality translates a little more easily to those spaces than certain other social norms or like physical gesture norms. There are so many ways in which we've seen this feedback loop develop between technology, like new technology and physical spaces that because social extended reality isn't as ubiquitous as something like social media or texting, you might not see this feedback loop happening yet. You maybe have because you are in these spaces a lot, but you know how people just verbally, they'll, they'll say things like LOL or OMG and oh, we wouldn't have done that before texting and like how there are all of these things that we take from technology and transplant it into physical spaces. And this way that you're describing that we ought to think about doing from physical spaces to virtual spaces, but I'm just curious what the, the second step or the third step looks like after we've had these technologies for long enough. I was just showing my students this week this documentary that featured a bioethicist named Alta Charo. And, and Charo said something really interesting that I think applies here, right? Which is like, you often don't know that you're in a revolution until after it's over. Right. And so I think we're going to find ourselves having fundamentally altered the way we live without realizing that it happened until we look backwards. Right. Like we didn't realize how important and how life changing the Internet would be until it was essential to all aspects of our existence. Right. And I think the the way that we can be as helpful as we can is to just try and say, this is something we should probably think about. And hopefully, as we just start to live and exist in these spaces, will have created frameworks for mitigating those those problems. You've been listening to Wild Beasts, a podcast from the Markle Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Thanks for tuning in, and check out our website for more episodes about ethics.